Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you're listening to this. This is the London Lyceum, where we uh, are the podcast that hopes to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly, more deeply and clearly than any other podcast you listen to. That's not true, but I'd like to say it is. Anyway, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And we are very looking forward to discussing the topic of the third use of the law uh, today with you. So we talk about a lot of topics on here, particularly analytic, Baptist, and confessional theology. And I would say that this one probably buckets most in the confessional box. Um, But all, I mean, obviously all of our topics, I think, overlap to some extent. So I'm really looking forward to to discussing this with you all today. Um, Really... You know, I was talking beforehand, I was going to kick it to Brandon to explain why we picked this topic, because uh, I was yeah. saying that he did. But So, actually, I didn't choose the topic, but I think the reason that Jordan wanted to talk about this is because me and him had some conversations about conversations that I had on Twitter with some guys who uh, deny, it seemed to me, the third use of the law. And they're not Lutherans in the... Uh, Properly speaking, they're not they're not Lutherans, but they've been reading a lot of Luther, and they think that Luther denies the third use of the law, which I don't think is correct either, because I checked with some Lutheran scholars, and I think that's a like a, a debate among among Lutherans about whether or not that's true. But I think um, most scholars now in that uh, camp seem to say that the seeds of the of the third use are there in the writings of Luther. So the reason that all this got started is because back and forth I was having on Twitter with some guys about sanctification and the third use of the law. So that's the reason that we're going to discuss it. Good stuff. So when we talk about the third use of the law, I can imagine that a good amount of our listeners know exactly what that is. Uh, Some of our other listeners, though, have probably never heard that terminology, or if they have, it's a little vague. So I wanted to really kind of lay some groundwork for what exactly it is so that we can intelligently discuss this topic. Uh, and I really think we need to begin with what exactly is the law to begin with? What is God's law uh, to understand this third usage concept? So in order to do that, I thought, man, what better way to to walk through it than to walk through some of the Second London Confession of Faith, as well as I think I've, I've put in here the New Hampshire Confession that I'm going to kind of reference at one point um, to talk about what the law is. So in chapter 19 on the law of God, so if you're really interested, you want to read about it, go to chapter 19 of the 1689 Confession, and you're going to find out what it says about the law of God. And in section two, it's talking about this law that's been written on our hearts and it's been delivered uh, by God uh, upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the first four containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty to man. And that obviously is referencing the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, which I think most of our listeners are familiar with the Ten Commandments. So the ideas of not having any other gods before me, of keeping the Sabbath holy, of not not murdering or, or not stealing. Um, and it's all summed up in the great commandment, of course, that Jesus gives to love God and neighbor. So the two tables, meaning the first four are about God, the last six are about our relationships to our neighbors. Um, and fundamentally... That is what the law is. 
So the second London reference is Romans chapter 2, which talks about uh, the Gentiles having a law of nature unto themselves that's written on their hearts and their consciences bear witness to this. And that is exactly what this uh, is referencing, the Decalogue. Now, there is some debate, I think, among the Gentiles if both tables of the law are written on their hearts, whether it's both the fact that they should love God and neighbor or just that they should love their neighbor. But if you go to any you know, any group of people, they all have a universal agreement that there should be some proper treatment of humans. Now, it can be distorted significantly, depending on where you're at and who you're talking to, but this is a universal thing. And this is a... Go ahead, Brandon, you were going to say something. Well, I was just going to say, it, not only is it universal, but it's something that the, the 1689 in chapter 19, paragraph two, it says, it begins there, it says... Uh, the same law that was first written in the human heart continue to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. So not only is it universal as in like um, everywhere um, across the globe it applies, but at all time it applies. So the content of the moral law doesn't change from pre-fall conditions to uh, post-fall. The law is the law. It doesn't change. It becomes something different uh, after the fall. So that's another point that the 1689 does make. Um, so the the content of that law the, the, the core, I guess, a core summary of that moral law is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20, which Jordan has already kind of gone over. So, yeah, you mentioned the moral law there. So what we've been kind of talking about is what is commonly ca- called moral law. And the moral law, at least among Reformed scholars and, and Reformed pastors, is this idea that God has a law that's in perpetuity, I guess, I, man, I can't even communicate sometimes, but it's been, it's always there. Yeah. Uh, the moral law has not changed. It's, it's not something that's just for a, a certain occasion. It's just based in God's own character and it will always be there. So not murdering someone is something that doesn't change no matter the covenantal construct, no matter the time period, no matter anything, you will never be able to murder someone and that be pleasing in God's sight. So this is the moral law, but there's also two other types of laws classically understood uh, by Reformed thinkers, and that's the ceremonial laws and the judicial laws, or the the civil laws uh, that were given to Israel in outside of the Ten Commandments. So you have the Ten Commandments, which is the moral law, and outside of that you have these civil and ceremonial laws, so things like, you know, um, you can't have clothes that have two different types of fabrics or don't eat what is it seashells what what's the stuff that people always shellfish shellfish Shellfish. i don't think you would have to stop people from doing that but i mean that's that's you know when people want to say well you guys don't even follow the law that's in the old testament they always go to stuff that's the civil and ceremonial and what the second london and what reformed thinkers have always said is that there's a division in the law yes so I'll just I'll just read that out of the out of the Second London Confession. This is and I'm reading out of the the modern English version. So all you uh, guys who enjoy the King's English will be disappointed. But this is the the, the modern English version put out by founders. But chapter uh, chapter 19, uh, paragraph three, it says, in addition to this law, usually called the moral law, now that's referring again to the Decalogue. God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several uh, typological ordinances. In some ways, these concerned worship by prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. In other ways, they revealed various instructions about moral duties. Since all of these ceremonial ceremonial laws were appointed 
Only until the new order arrived, they are now abolished and taken away by Jesus Christ as the true Messiah and the only lawgiver. He was empowered by the Father to do this. So that is in reference to the ceremonial laws. Jordan also mentioned judicial or um, civil laws. The next paragraph in the 1689 says, To Israel he also gave various judicial laws, which ceased at the same time that their nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution, only their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. Now, one thing we need to point out is that the, the moral uh, root of these judicial laws is not different from the moral uh, content of the Decalogue, right? This is a specific and particular application of um, the moral law. It's not like this is two different moral codes that are in contradiction with one another. You think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think that's actually really well put. Okay. So um, I know some people, they when they hear this distinction, what is traditionally called the tripartite nature of the Mosaic law, uh, they're going to push back and say, well, when I open up my Old Testament, I don't see a section that says civil law, then a section that says moral law, and then a section that says ceremonial. I see them all mixed together uh, around. So what would you say in response to people who um, do not uh, hold to this distinction between civil, ceremonial, and moral? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm going to link to an article that argues against this division so that you can check it out if that's something you're really interested in. Um, it was something that I was convinced of back when I was in college. I thought, man, this, 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 these distinctions are arbitrary because if you read through the Old Testament or the New Testament, they're all jumbled together. You have one civil, then you have a moral, then you have ceremonial. So how is it that you can pull them out? And again, I think this is just part of your theological method. Um, you can do theology and construct things in a systematic way and it be a true and right expression of what the text is communicating, even though it's not packaged in that formalized manner. Mm-hmm. So I think this tripart di- distinction, while no, it's not laid out exactly like that in the text itself, it beckons us to bucket them in those ways. And I think it makes the most sense of the overall scheme and and message of of the scripture. So I think it's the most faithful to what the text is actually trying to communicate. Yeah. And it's also something worth noting, I think, is that, um, and this is just, I don't want to drill down too deeply here and get get off on this because we haven't got to the uses of the law yet. We're still defining it. But, you know, the the Ten Commandments were given in a unique way um, when, when compared to the rest of the law. So, um, it's not like there's not something in the text that, um, or it's not like we can't find something in the text that's that's unique about the moral law. There is, I mean, it was given in a very um, specific way on Mount Sinai um, to the people of God um, in a way that the the ceremonial and the judicials the judicial laws were not given. Yeah, and I want to drill down again on the the idea of the law expiring because I know a lot of people at least in America, think that the entirety of the law is expired, or at least parts of it expired, and they're just not really sure how to put that together. So I'm not going to go over all these biblical texts, because there's a lot that mention the idea of the law expiring, and that need to be expounded, but we just don't have the the bandwidth to go over that. Maybe if you're interested in that, and you want us to talk more about this, message us, tell us, hey, I want more information on this, and we'll do more episodes on it. But for now... There's texts like Ephesians 2, and in, in verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, that being Jesus, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So what people will do is say, look, 
It abolishes the law of commandments. It abolishes the entire entirety of the Old Testament law. So the only law that we have is anything that's repeated in the New Testament and given as a new command. Or Galatians 3, verse 23, it says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So people will look at that and say, look, we used to be under the law in the Old Testament. Now I'm in the New Testament. I'm no longer under the law. I'm just under Christ and I'm free. So I think the problem here is they've misunderstood these texts and what they're trying to communicate. And there's also other texts. I'm going to highlight the the Matthew chapter 5 text here. Um, So keep in mind the text that that Jordan just wrote. But in Matthew chapter 5, these are the words of Jesus. He, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but but to fulfill them. And then he continues on. I'm not going to read it all, but talking about how the law will never pass away. Now, so we have to interpret that passage and the two passages that uh, Jordan just read, along with other Pauline passages that talk about uh, the law. And I guess you could say a more positive light. Um, so how do we actually open up the scriptures and think about these things? Cause it can't be that, um, well, either the law is abolished or the law is not abolished. I mean, it, it's, it, it the, both of those things are, are not going to be able to be true at the same time. So, um, they have to be talking about two different things. So the law was abolished in a certain sense. I don't know how much, do we want to get into like covenant works and all that stuff? Or? No, we're not going to get into the covenant okay. works and covenant of grace yet. I think that's the topic we'll t- address later. Um, but basically when, when, when the law, when we talk about the law being abolished, it's abolished in the sense that we are no longer under the law and in, in a way that, um, our obedience to the law is the basis of our blessing or our curse or, or, or curses upon us. Okay. All of that has been fulfilled by Christ. Yeah. And so, this really leads us right into the idea of the three uses of the moral law. So particularly the moral law, it's been by reform thinkers. There's three different uses for it. And it's that first use that is of importance for these texts, I think. It is, but just because uh, we're, we're using the reformed order. But if you're, if you're reading a Lutheran, uh, one and two are going to be switched. So just... I don't want people to get confused over that, depending on what, you know, if you pull up an article and start reading and maybe we've got it backwards, but so reformed are going to have the, um, the mirror or uh, revelation of sin use first, and then the civil use second, and then Lutherans are going to have the civil use first. Um, so sorry, Jordan. Go yeah, ahead. No, that's fine. That's good. That's a good distinction there. So I was going to say the pedagogical use of the law is what I want to go with first. So the Heidelberg catechism says this is kind of like guilt portion uh, of the law. It's a, it's the law portion that's leading us to justification. So in that Galatians text, when it's talking about being held captive under the law until, or in order that we might be justified by faith, that's this purpose of the law. So the law shows us our sin, shows us our failure to live up to the righteous standard of God and drives us to repentance and faith in Christ. So that is a purpose of this law. And once you're justified, that purpose of the law is no longer functioning in the same way. The law shifts in how it's used for you. Once you become a believer, you don't forsake the law. The law is no longer gone. It's just different. It's no longer a guardian leading you to justification. Now it is more of a, a, uh, a guide 
that's leading you in sanctification. It's causing you because of your gratitude for for your your sanctification, or I guess for your justification, you're led to lead a life of holiness. So that's what the third use, the normative use, is this idea of it's leading the Christian into better obedience. Why else would the New Testament give laws if it wasn't expected that Christians would actually use them? So before we get more into that, I do want to mention the second use of the law, not forget that, and that's the civil use of the law. I think most of us agree that this is a very intuitive and natural way to understand the fact that the law restrains evil uh, in a judicial aspect. So irregardless of who you are, the law is going to restrain people from doing evil things such as murdering. I would hope that everyone would agree that murdering is a bad thing and that we should have laws that restrain such evil. But more than just the civil, more than just this pedagogical leading me to justification, uh, it also has a normative guiding me in sanctification. Yeah, so one way to think about it could be that you think about the um, the first use in that the law, the law is a mirror and it shows the need for Christ. So the primary um, audience, I guess you could say, of that use is unbelievers, okay? Um, the second use, the civil, that's going to be equally applicable to unbelievers and believers because we all live under civil authorities. Um, and not to get into all this, but that God has, has ordained um, as as ministers of justice. Um, and that's how um, Paul puts it in Romans chapter 13, if you want to go there for a scriptural basis for the second use. But the third use, <clears throat> um, this normative use, this is how we know what is pleasing to God. Um, you know, when, when you're talking to somebody and, and they don't buy into this third use, I'm not under the law anymore, you know, um, and I think I know what is part of the, the, the reason behind at least these specific individuals that I've gone back and forth with. They, they don't want people to get caught up in um, fruit counting. And, you know, I'm just obsessed with how much I've been able to do and and constantly looking at myself uh, for my growth. So I, I totally understand um, that the pushback on that, but that doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater and that the the law is of, of no use anymore. So I want to look at uh, a couple of, of passages here. Um, well, one uh, in John 14, 15, you know, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, so how do we know um, if we're loving God? Well, we're going to keep his commandments. Well, how do we know what those commandments are if the law is, is of no use anymore? How do we know what the content of good behavior is? How do we know what is pleasing to God as a Christian? What what we should do, what we shouldn't do, what we should say, what we shouldn't say. If we don't have um, any, any moral uh, guide to go by, then I don't see how... We know what a what a, a God honoring life looks like as a Christian. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's helpful. All right, yeah. So one one thing I want to mention here on on this topic is I think both the New Hampshire and the sixteen eighty nine Confession have really helpful summarizations of the harmony between the law and the gospel. So really showing the fact that the gospel doesn't nullify the law; it doesn't mm-hmm. sideline the law for the Christian. It just changes the entire mood of the law. No longer is it a, a, a judge and judicial guardian over us. Now it is a friendly beckoning and call of love to, to grow in obedience. So the New Hampshire talks about how one great end of the gospel is for us to grow in our obedience to the holy law. The 1689 talks about the moral law. It binds us forever 
as well as justified person, just as well as justified persons as others. So it's not as if it's gone for one. The obedience is for both. And neither doth Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve, but strengthen the obligation to the law. I think that's clear in that Matthew uh, chapter five passage where it talks about, you know, he says, I tell you, where is it? Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That is Jesus there explaining the nature of the law, the fundamental role of it, and saying that, look, guys, not an iota, not a dot is going to fall away. It may change in its role towards you to a different usage, a different purpose for you, but it's not dissolving. It's not disappearing. It's going to be there all the more for you, just in a very different light. Yeah, I mean, we don't live under the law as it's no longer a burden to us. And I think I mentioned this earlier, but it's worth repeating that the law is no longer this thing that's like um, we sit under the heavy weight of it. And it's like, I just um, I know I can't live up to this. And that, again, points back to the first use, because when we realize you know, that we don't stack up, that points us to Christ and we, we run to the cross. Okay, but that doesn't it doesn't follow from that, that just because the law we don't have that relationship to the law anymore that the content of the law has has changed or that the we have no relationship to the law at all just because your relationship to the law changes doesn't mean you don't have a relationship to the law at all and that's all the third use is saying is that it's still relevant in the life of a christian it's not just this and i still i, I don't i mean if somebody has an answer to this be my guest but i don't understand how you can say um, as a christian um, I want to live a God honoring and and uh, fruitful life, and I want to please God, but then try to do that apart from living according to God's law. Yeah, I think that's great. So Brandon, do you have anything else to add before we wrap this up? Uh, no, I don't think so. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this has been a really helpful, I guess, kind of mini explanation of what the law is and what the three uses of the law are. So I encourage you listeners, if you have questions or if you want us to dive in more into one of these topics, reach out to us and let us know. The only way we know uh, what you really care about hearing from us is if you tell us. So I encourage you to do that. And another thing I encourage you to do, uh, it it helps us and it helps you, uh, honestly, is if you really like our podcast, share our podcast in different formats. You know, share it on your social media stuff or share it, you know, text it to your friends, whatever it is. And when you do that, it gives us the ability to bring on better guests onto the podcast so that you can get more uh, excellent material from them. Because when we have more guests, we're like saying, hey, look, guys, we've had, you know, X person, Y person come on the podcast before. So we're not just, you know, you know, nobody's doing this. We, we actually know what we're talking about to some degree, uh, not totally, but it gives us a little more credibility is what I'm saying. So I encourage you to share the stuff so that we can bring on more people because I like listening to them uh, myself. And I know, I, at least I think that you guys enjoy listening to really unique and uh, specialized guests that have really interesting stuff to share with us. Yeah. And just one more thing, you know, uh, we do not claim infallibility here. So if we say something that you think is, uh, an error that we need correction or whatever, I mean, that's how we keep these conversations going. If, you know, send us a tweet or, or whatever else. And, you know, maybe we can, uh, you can come on and talk to us about it or, 
um, we can try to correct whatever mistake we made or anything like that. So, cause we want to, yeah. I mean, that, that's part of this whole thing too, is to sharpen ourselves. So um, that's just something to keep in mind. I mean, really there's no more terrifying thing than putting this out into the universe to where anybody can listen to it and correct you. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really easy to sit back behind, you know, behind an anonymous, uh, account on, on social media or something, or not telling anything to anybody. Uh, but when everybody knows who you are and can actually hear what you're saying, especially on the microphone like this, I mean, you could say some really dumb things. It's easier to type stuff out and not say something stupid than it is to do a podcast and say something stupid. So definitely encourage you to correct us if we've done something wrong. But again, uh, thank you for listening. We, we really appreciate your support. Uh, I've been kind of surprised by the level of support that we've had. So uh, it's really encouraging when you guys uh, mention stuff to us. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. But do, if you have topic ideas or if you want us to delve into more stuff, please tell us that. So again, thanks for listening uh, to the only confessional analytic bo- podcast that exists in here or the extraterrestrial realm or in black holes or wherever you think exists. You know, maybe black holes don't really exist positively, but uh, we encourage you to continue to listen to our podcast. Thanks. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.